Welcome to the Swaplex Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede, and I'm here today with Bill Arsenault. Hey, how's it going? And uh, first, uh, you said Lede. I, I've been pronouncing it Ledet <laughs> so in my in my inner circles. You know, my family and friends. You know, whenever you know, oh, the guy from Swampflix, Brandon Ledet. That's like a uh, family contention, even with people I'm related to. Like they um, can't decide which one's correct. And then I always say Ledette to um, customer service people. So if I'm like ordering a coffee or booking a hotel room, it's like easier for people to spell. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You kind of have to. Yeah, right. Yeah. I, I don't give them that that much uh, leeway or, or room to breathe. I'm like, no, uh, my name's Bill Arsenault. You will learn French today very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm all, I'm all the more happy to spell it out for them and everything. Like, you know, have yeah. a, you know but I like hearing them go arsenics. <laughs> The only thing that raises the hairs on the back of my neck is uh, let it. Like, uh, usually it's someone outside the state says let it. I'm like, ugh. <laughs> uh, excuse me, Mr. Let it? Uh, yeah, it just, it just rubs me wrong. <laughs> well, you've kind of are becoming our uh, official festival correspondent, because last time I talked to you, we were talking about Overlook Film Festival, and now oh, we're here yeah, today talking right. about New Orleans Film Festival. I, which is it's it's funny that I, it, 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 that you feel that way because this year I feel like I've kind of slacked off with festivals a little bit in terms of festival coverage. I'm making up for it with this year's New Orleans Film Festival, but uh, I, I I did a few things with a couple of film fests, but I didn't really dive in as much as I could have. I felt so I'm 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 trying to change that. I, I think it's just the year, you know, like the last two years have been obviously been rough for everyone. Yeah. Uh, so I think maybe some of that has kind of washed over and, and everything. So um, uh, usually in the thick of an emergency, I'm like ready. I'm, I'm like, okay, let's let's get into it. Let's let's do it. But when things start to kind of calm down again, I'm like, oh wow, we just went through some some stuff, didn't we? You know. Then the wave of despair hits me. You know. So it's it might be one of those kind of things. I don't know. But. Um, yeah, I was excited for this year's fest, and I'm still excited for it, having uh, happened already, I guess, <laughs> that it happened in all. They definitely gave a lot of breathing room for people to catch up with, like, virtual stuff this year. Because, you know, the actual fest was, like, a week, and then there was another week of just, like, catch up for anybody who didn't want to attend in person for health-related reasons. Yeah, that that ended sat Sunday night, the virtual uh, part, and... um the uh, the festival organizers were extremely nice, that, that, as they always are. But I always like to mention they they were very nice uh, the, to critics and to PR people and everything. They're like, "Do you need anything? Do you have all the you know photos you need for your articles? Do you this and that?" And I'm like, "Yep, everything's good. Thank you." You know, <laughs> and uh, and of course they made it even easier with uh, Eventive, the um, the app where you can view their uh, catalog on the virtual catalog and you can watch it on Roku or Apple TV or whatever. And uh, that was very helpful too. Um, I went through a bunch of short films in like quick succession just on the Eventive uh, app. And um, it was a very easy experience. The one thing I missed though was um, I think two years ago when they, when the, the thick of COVID and they had to do a completely virtual fest, they, um, they did introductions and some Q and A's, yeah. Or over Zoom, and they would play before and after the eventive virtual uh, streams. So I kind of missed that, you know. But I guess that that makes sense that they would remove that from the virtual portion and stick it on uh, in person, <laughs> you know. 
You know, even last year, I went to see Memoria at Elmwood. They had a screening there, and they played kind of like an introduction, I believe, from Clint Bowie, who's one of the people who works for New Orleans Film Society. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. On the big screen, like, so even though it was an in-person event, it had like a recorded preamble to it. Yeah, wasn't it kind of weird, though, that that they they picked Elmwood? AMC (laughs) Elmwood. Normally, I'm not trying to throw shade on AMC Elmwood. I lived in Harahan for a couple years. That was a great source of, believe it or not, independent films. They oh, actually yeah. they actually do a good job programming stuff. They have over twenty screens to play with, so they can play Some, whatever they sometimes, want. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes better than I, I don't want to like again throw shade on a theater, but sometimes they do it better than the uh, little theaters can, you know. But that's that's uh, there's an argument that can be made over, like you said, screen space and you know all that stuff, but. Um, Still, I thought it was a little odd. Like the film festival usually likes to keep things in the city or around a central area, and then they they choose AMC Elmwood for for a couple of them. I thought that was uh, I thought that was pretty interesting. This year's fest, I remember when the list came out uh, of the films that were going to play. Uh, when the final list came out, when you know the spotlights, the the bigger movies plus the smaller movies and everything, it, it felt kind of like it was a scaled back. I agree. Programming. Not that there wasn't hard work put into it or that it wasn't challenging or that there wasn't anything interesting. It's just in previous years, usually they, 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 they're able to get like one or two Sundance picks or uh, something that's a little more higher profile to really entice people. Hey, we got this playing, but we also have a bunch of other great stuff. This year, they were kind of almost relying solely on uh, the notoriety of the... Uh, of the smaller movies, like, hey, these are Louisiana movies. These are uh, international movies. We're an international festival. We're a local festival. Come on in. Yeah, I think uh, there's like a shift in focus to more local content. And then like the bigger red carpet movies were um, Oscar qualifying runs. Like the festival's like an Oscar qualifying venue. Yeah. So like stuff that went straight to streaming, like the main movie we're going to talk about today needs to have played in a certain number of theaters to qualify for awards consideration. So a lot of the bigger red carpet movies are stuff that already have streaming deals, and a few of them you can watch at home already. Uh, it was yeah. just like a bigger fanfare to see it with a crowd with like a huge intro and a big to-do. Yeah, that's right. But uh, no, despite all that, you know, and those aren't even big things, just nitpicky stuff, but the festival, as always, was exciting. You know, it's always great to look through... Uh, the different categories. One thing I miss is Cinema Reset. That, And this is probably because of COVID and because the people that ran Cinema Reset either left New Orleans or are doing other projects. But they kind of focused more on experimental media uh, as it related to film or within film as opposed to like just showing a regular movie. They would, they would do um, a little bit of virtual reality. They would do a little more interactive stuff. They would do um, almost uh, video pieces, like art pieces in a way, like video installations. Yeah, I remember a lot of projected music videos just in the lobby. Oh, okay. Like a little virtual village. Uh, so like it was at, like, <laughs> like the main hub where you would be waiting in line to go see like the big premiere of that night. And then there'd just be like really weird side adventures you can go on <laughs> to the little music video room or put on a VR headset or whatever. I, I feel bad. I can't remember when I when I last went to the film festival in person. Um, physically? Physically, yeah. Because I think this might be COVID speaking, you know, because I, I know I've been there 
you know, it's just the last one that I really, really remember was seeing the Florida Project uh, debut at the Orpheum. I was there. Uh, yeah, that's the last time I remember really going to the the making a festival event. I'm sure I went to. Oh God, I I feel bad that I can't remember, but I'm sure I went to a couple others before COVID hit. I went to a couple screenings this year in person, and they were not especially well attended. Like I, I expected them to be more crowded than they were. Oh. Um, but I did notice while waiting in line to get into one of the movies, um, and I'm being a little dodgy about which ones I'm talking about because I'll just bring them up later. But uh, I did notice that the crowd coming out of the Louis Armstrong documentary that's on Apple TV right now, um, I think it's called like Black and Blues. Yeah. Uh, that crowd was ginormous um, at the Uptown Britannia. So I'm sure they did have screenings that were like well attended uh, <laughs> this year. <laughs> I was just uh, maybe picking more of the esoteric titles off the list. Yeah, I guess it's it's a little unpredictable. Well, I kind of purposefully don't go to the bigger ones anyway. Like, yeah. I, it's not really why you're there, you know? Like, I want to see stuff that I'll have no chance to watch either on a big screen or at all, depending on its distribution path, you know? Yeah, I remember my first uh, event. I went to go see... This was like... Oh, my goodness. Uh, around the time I first really got into uh, writing. Uh, 2007, maybe? Uh, this was before I actually started blogging, but it was around that time I was considering it. I think the very first screening I went to was of... Uh, Alan Cumming movie that he had just directed uh, called Suffering Man's Charity, which he eventually retitled Ghost Writer. Uh, writer, not writer. <laughs> starring Nick Cage. Yeah, starring <laughs> Nick Cage, right. Um, but later we also saw Eastern Promises, which was outside of the festival, but it was at the same theater. It was at the old canal place before it turned into a, a, a place for chefs, and then, event, then before Britannia got it. And that was a cool little mix of independent film and films that would probably you wouldn't really get to see outside of a festival. You would have to really seek out. Yeah, Britannia's got it back in that shape again. I've been seeing yeah. stuff there that's playing nowhere else in the city lately. Yeah, I, I love that. I think Britannia, the, the guys at the Britannia, uh, the Bernier family and everything, they're, they're, they're really ratcheting it up at, at the Canal Place. Uh, I think they did something that really surprised me. Recently, I forget what the movie was, but I was like, wait, they're showing that? It was one of those kind of things. I was like, I didn't yeah. expect that from Zeitgeist. They've been doing more repertory stuff, too, where you could see like a movie that's not brand new on the big screen for the first time. And that's, that's stuff I've been like dragging myself out to there as well. Yeah, uh, they hooked up with uh, Josh Stover and um, the Court 13 people uh, with uh, doing Wildwood. Yeah programming every week and uh, I, i've been meaning to get out to one of those i just love following that kind of stuff uh i, I forgot what they showed recently but the, but it was it was something that was that i was like wow they got that you know so well hopefully they got permission i mean i don't know i don't know the, the sitch you know <laughs> <laughs> i don't want to say anything or do hey, if you just say donations encouraged instead of required then uh, you can get away with a lot of stuff yeah that maybe that's maybe that's <laughs> it maybe they keep it on the download that's why yeah, they're yeah. on instagram <laughs> yeah. cash only at the door well you sound like you're downplaying your access to the festival because of you, you didn't go any physical screenings but i know for a fact you're the MVP of today's conversation because you saw way more than I did. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm not downplaying. It's not so much downplaying. It's more 
I just feel bad that I wasn't there in person. You know, I love going to the movies. Yeah. Uh, I just feel bad because I happen to live across the street from a movie theater, which I'm very <laughs> happy about. But it's it just feels more convenient to go there than it does to travel 40 minutes, because uh, I live in Covington, uh, 40 minutes across the bridge, and then into the city, and then find parking and all that stuff. I, I will do that for the Britannia or Zeitgeist or the Broad, but it has to really be like really special to me, you know. Otherwise, because lately I've just been getting access virtually to stuff, and it gets to a point where it's like numbing, you know. I don't want to be numb to this stuff, yeah. You know? So that's that's how I feel about it. But yes, I did see quite a few films. I assume you're covering the movies that you saw at the film fest on Movie Going with Bill, correct? Yes, I've already done Causeway, which I believe we're going to talk about in a little bit. Uh, I've also done an, uh, an interview with a, uh, local filmmaker about his short film, which I, I will get into later. And I have two more features to go through. Plus, uh, I'm going to try to review all the shorts that I, uh, watched, uh, some of which I'll be talking about here, but, uh, you know, I'm going to see how I'm going to fit them in and arrange them. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not going to like power through it necessarily. I'm going to pace myself, but that's the plan. Well, go ahead and spell that URL out one more time before we uh, get oh. into Causeway. Uh, the, technically, there's two URLs, uh, but the main one is moviegoing.rocks, R-O-C-K-S, because moviegoing rocks. And uh, the other one is moviegoing.substack.com. It, uh, yes, my blog is on a Substack newsletter platform, which... It's cool. I, I like it. <laughs> and you should like it, too. I love that it uh, takes me no effort to remember to read it because it comes straight to my email. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's that, that's the cool part. It's like you can be invasive without being invasive. No, it's convenient, if anything. Oh, okay. It's convenient. No, I mean, I mean because it's like you find your way into the inbox, but you were allowed to, to go in there. Yeah, you were invited like a vampire. <laughs> I love that this movie is surrounded by water, you know, like there's a big element of the water aspect. I always call it the baptism of uh, our characters in this story. But all of that is because of how deeply enriched New Orleans is by its own personal magic. There's something about the resiliency of, of, of New Orleans, like how it is literally a, a, a city where the natives there are natives and they will not leave no matter how much has been done to it, no matter how, like the foundation and the roots, like literally to talk about roots, New Orleans is the city that has that. It doesn't feel like it's America. That's it true. is so yeah. um, uh, unique and it's just like so singular. Mm-hmm. And visually it's like overwhelming. I mean, we, where can you shoot it that doesn't have something to offer as we were saying earlier a lot of like the big like red carpet premieres of stuff that played at the festival was you know movies that already had distribution deals for streaming services the main one we're going to talk about today is causeway because it's the only movie that both you and i saw at the festival um, (laughs) which took some coordination because i don't know that i would have seen this if you hadn't singled it out um I, i read your review today which was very positive yeah and it made sense for programming at this festival because it is set in new orleans and it's a somewhat high profile film because it's starring jennifer lawrence i believe it's the first production from her her new company where she's trying to give herself some like 
actual acting roles that aren't just major blockbuster type things uh, that she's been doing. Yeah, I didn't know that was her her production company too. I wasn't aware of that. And I mean, after she like self-funded through that new company, you know, it got distribution through A24, who got a deal with Apple TV Plus. So there's a lot yep. of different uh, hands. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's a very understated drama, um, kind of calling back to Winter's Bone, which is you know what got her famous in the first place as a younger star. She's playing a war veteran who's returning to New Orleans from Afghanistan, uh, recovering from a brain injury from. I believe her vehicle was like bombed in like an active combat situation. And after some recovery through physical therapy, she starts to get her legs back in the city and then has to deal with what she was running away from when she joined the army in the first place, uh, which is, you know, family trauma at home. Um, And in the meantime, she starts this very uneasy friendship with a local mechanic played by Brian Tyree Henry. And most of the movie is these like kind of one-on-one conversations between her and this mechanic um, who has his own traumatic past that he's kind of dealing with. And they kind of just learn how to be friends on these very uneasy terms after being very lonely, you know, hurt people. And, you know, there's a little bit of the city as a backdrop, but it's not a very like touristy movie. I think, I think the most it really makes a show of it being local is when they go to Hanson's snow blitz uh, for a couple yeah. snowballs. But otherwise, it's like, you know, they're hanging out in backyards, courtyards, bars, the mechanic shop. Like, it's it's just a very, like, low-key drama that happens to be set here. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, it, it's interesting. She, um, Jennifer Lawrence's character, uh, when we're in, the movie starts really with a shot where we're right behind her, like, right up on her, uh, the backside of her head. And it's not clear what's happening. It's just she's sitting, and on the other side of the frame is uh, a car that comes into the to, to image. And uh, it's revealed when she goes closer to the car that she's actually in a wheelchair, and she's being guided by someone in army fatigues and in an army uniform. So we already learn from that some of what's happening. She she maybe just got out of the hospital or something. She perhaps was in the military or in a situation involving the military, and she's about to go somewhere with someone <laughs> and start an adventure of some sort. Uh, it was an interesting beginning. I this movie was directed. I, I forget her name. I'm sure you you'll you have it with you. Uh, but she, I believe, did theater before she did this film. I think this is her directorial debut. Yeah, that makes sense too, because a lot of the. Um exchanges in the movie are literally just like two people in a room talking you know it's not just about that friendship between jennifer lawrence and brian tyree henry like it's either her and her mom or her and her brother or her and her physical therapist like i I don't know if this was a covid era production it kind of seems like it because it's very intimately scaled as if it were a series of you know scenes in a play like oh sure oh sure And, and i'm sure that um maybe jennifer lawrence you know, single this one out, not just because of, uh, like you said, you know, her production company and wanting to take on projects that were maybe a little more personal or a little more intimate or uh, awards-y, but uh, also logistically, like, okay, look, we're going to make a movie. It's going to be in this new era where we have to be careful health-wise, a little bit more careful health-wise. So what can we do that's limited setting you know, it doesn't require too much heavy stuff, special effects, you know, this and that. 
you know, oh, this movie that's set mostly in backyards with pools and on stoops and snowball stands. Yeah, okay, let's do that. You know, <laughs> and yeah. of course, uh, New Orleans is a great place to shoot movies at, um, or just Louisiana in general. You know, Hollywood South plug, but uh, New Orleans in the movie is, is. I wrote in my review that it, it it's kind of a character, as it always is in movies that that take place in New Orleans. New Orleans can't help but be a character in films that take place in the city. With regards to Causeway. New Orleans is, is just as much of a character as Jennifer Lawrence and uh, Brian Tyree Henry are. It, it, it's, I think I described it as, um, oh, I, I remember. Okay, it was, this was like one of the last lines in my review. It was like, uh, this movie's more, more America than Superman. <laughs> uh, and I think I'll, I wrote this movie, but also the city is more America than Superman. And the film, which has themes of, um, you know, trauma not just physical, but also emotional. Uh, themes of friendship, moving on, you know, moving past, you know, pain and trauma from, from your past and uh, things of that nature. And I, I thought it was interesting that it takes place in New Orleans, especially because she's, she's a member of the Army Corps of Engineers, and she was working on a water project in Afghanistan. Uh, that was her thing. And we, we learn about that later in the movie, after she's taking on a new job as a pool assistant or cleaner like for rich people with pools you know? <laughs> or just yeah. anyone with pools for that matter and uh and she's still recovering from this brain injury but she's determined to kind of work her way back up into her position at the army corps of engineers and when i heard that word army corps of engineers that stuck in my head then i associated it new orleans then i associated it with water and this and that it was like um, a word game almost, you know, and a word association. And immediately I was like, oh my God, New Orleans is a character in this movie. You know, like it's making these, these jumps to past traumas. I think you know where I'm going. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And they, they don't mention Katrina at all in the movie, but they don't, it's not even every, really, everything's kind of underplayed. Like everything is underplayed. Yeah. When you say the city's a character, like outside of a shot of the Superdome, or you know the RTA bus system or something like there's not that much like stressing it, but um, also the time period is like hard to place like the type of combat that she's in in Afghanistan and like the fact that she uses a flip phone and a couple other things just feel like it was set closer to when Katrina would have been more of a recent wound. That's 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 a good point. Yeah, I I want to say I saw a smartphone somewhere in there, but. I, I really don't remember. I remember her having the flip phone, but I, I immediately was like, oh, that's just because her rehab... Um, Assigned it to her. <laughs> her the, yeah, she just gave it to her, so she probably like just picked it up at the grocery store. You know, It's like a burner phone or something. Yeah, and, yeah it's, uh, it's hard to remember if that's a character detail or a temporal detail, but I don't know. It, it feels like it could have been set earlier than it is. Earlier I, than I now. It, it had to have been because uh, we're not in Afghanistan anymore. So it could, right. of course that's more immediate history. This movie I'm sure was made, you know, around that time, but it was still like, okay, you know, we're set a couple years before that. So, but none of, none of that stuff is like stressed very loudly. Like you kind of have to like dig a little under, like dig for context in, in a, most of the film, like even the two characters past traumatic events are like 
very gradually revealed and i want to say almost all the way to the third act you don't get them fully explaining what they've been through to each other in like honest open terms and like especially to jennifer lawrence's character that there was like a final reveal you know of what her past trauma and even then it's still kind of murky yeah like, uh, we don't really know exactly was it a generic thing that they were put through together her and her brother or was it is there something we're missing from the movie, like a detail or something? Because she has a relationship with her mother, but her mother's kind of a uh, detached, uh, somewhat neglectful, maybe fully neglectful woman. But at the same time, she clearly has some affection for her daughter. You know, um, for, the, for example, she was supposed to pick her daughter up from the bus stop. You know, she um, Jennifer Lawrence makes a trip back down to New Orleans to, I guess, finish her recovery and um, try to build herself back up. And her mother, I guess they made an arrangement on the phone or something, and uh, she's like, I'll come pick you up. And she never did. Uh, so she she had to like find her way around the city and get back to the, the home. Uh, when her mom came came into the house, she didn't realize her daughter was, was there. So, she's, so she comes into the house with a date. And she frequently comes into the movie, in the movie, comes into her, her home with a, with new dates throughout the movie. Uh, a few a few times throughout the movie, uh, and it's <laughs> I think there was one bit where where the mother's like, "Don't judge me," right? You know, and Jennifer Lawrence's like, eh, "Whatever." But but even again, getting back to the stage play aspect of it, like we never see those men; we hear them as like voices in the background, and it's always yeah. about the one on one conversation between her and her mom about. You know, maybe the ways that her mom's disappointing her by not fully focusing on her. Oh, absolutely. Or or even vice versa, because the mother seems... I don't want to say she's, like, fully disappointed. I think she's disappointed in, like, she expected her daughter to be more connected to her than yeah. she's supposed to be connected to her daughter. Um, there is a nice scene where they're relaxing, or she's the mother's relaxing outside in her little kiddie pool, getting drunk. <laughs> I was like, man, that is such a Louisiana thing, isn't it? For oh, an yeah. adult to be in a kiddie pool getting drunk. I was like, dude, that's 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 not Homer Simpson. That's New Orleans, you know. <laughs> and uh <laughs> and and Jennifer Lawrence sees it and she's like, Hey, come in here, you know, you know, join me. And they have a little, you know, nice little chat and there's nothing more to it than than them just having a nice little chat that of of what their day was like. There's nothing like, I'm sorry I was a bad mother. Or I'll make more of an effort to be better and da 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 da. No, it's just hey, how was your day? So this happened. Oh, okay. Well, da 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 da. da. I'm gonna go inside get another drink. Then it's the next scene. It's very interesting how the movie, like you said before, slowly unravels. But even when it unravels as as far as it's going to, it's still not quite playing its hand or making its hand obvious to the audience. It's still kind of like. I want to say it's going more by feeling or having the audience uh, judge the movie by feeling than it is by um, what's fully there or said or sh or shown or stated like by the, cause even the, 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 the ending of the film is uh, almost like mid scene. It cuts and that's the credits. You know, we don't really know what's going to happen after that. It's, I believe Orson Welles had said something to the effect of, um, a story only has a happy ending depending on where you put it, <laughs> you know? So it's, it's, it's like, we don't really know what happens after this, this point, but maybe 
you know, maybe we can, it's left up to you, you know, and what, what did you gather from the film? It's, it's, it's interesting how it's challenging in that way. And it really doesn't have to be, it could, it could have really just rested on the laurels of being a uh, domestic kind of drama, uh, understated as it is, but instead it kind of chose to be like, we're saying understated, but also a little bit more, a little bit for lack of a better word, heady, not over our heads, just, you know, a little, giving us a little more weight than than expected. And the the movies I gravitate towards are usually stuff where everything's out in the open. I really like stuff that's like not hiding anything from me. I like things to be almost cathartically unsubtle. Uh, so I I would not have gravitated towards watching this in the first place because like. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I I'm not saying that like it was a bad experience. I I enjoyed it. I I think the two actors who have to hold it down are very talented people and like watching them chew on this dialogue. Like that seemed like the main point of it more than anything else. was just like watching uh, J law and Brian Tyree Henry spar was kind of the point, like watching them like volley dialogue back and forth seemed like the main show. And I guess this time of year from like festival season all the way through award season, like that's mainly what's available. Um, and like, this is not my time to shine. Like <laughs> when <laughs> Halloween ends and all the trashy horror movies dry up until January, like I'm kind of out of my element. Yeah. I, I am too a little bit with, with some of these movies. Like I, it gets to the point where it's like, it's almost like you're scrolling through Netflix, right? And you, you catch a little teaser or a scene and it's maybe, um, I don't know, uh, a Victorian era film. It could be the, the best costumed, best acted, best directed film ever, but right next to it is Tiger King. And, and you're like, okay, am I in the mood for something where I know what I'm going to get? Or am I in the mood for something that is more like a, uh, a lecture at a college? Right. You know, it's like, I'm going to go with the garbage. At least <laughs> I know what I'm getting with that. I'm, I'm just getting straight trash, you know? <laughs> And Netflix is actually a good example because, like, this is an Apple TV Plus presentation. It is yeah. something that you watch because you're already subscribed to that streaming service. I, I doubt many people are signing up for this in particular. Like, this isn't going to draw in new customers to that service. No, it's, I, I agree. It's not, I, I mean, people within Louisiana, specifically in Southeast Louisiana, if they have heard about Causeway, and that's an if, because I don't see too many commercials or like, we're now on Apple TV, this movie is an Apple TV Plus exclusive. And da, 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 da. I'm sure there's a few out there, but, you know, it's not like everyone's clamoring for it. You know, it's not like the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, which I believe was set some of it in Louisiana uh, because the, the character, the Falcon, is from Louisiana. So it's not like that where... Oh, Louisiana Pride, you know, we, we had a we have a Marvel show that was that was done here. Whereas you got Causeway, which in my opinion is an, is a really good movie, and it's this more low-key drama with good acting and good direction, all that stuff. And people will just kind of go, Well, that's nice, but Fraggle Rock is on. I guess that's kind of what I was getting to is like I do appreciate that this time of year does find a space for that stuff because like most of the year all anybody wants to talk about is 
Star Wars and Marvel and like, you know, whatever other Disney subsidiary is, you know, eating up screen space. But yeah. like you will have festival premieres for stuff like this where like people fight to get in to find a seat. Or um, you know, Coda last year won the Best Picture Oscar, even yep. though I think it's a pretty comparable movie to this on in terms of scale and presentation. So it, I, I do appreciate, despite myself, that uh, this kind of like more subtle, understated style of filmmaking does have its time of year. But it is more of a challenge for my attention span than like the stuff I'm I'm more looking for when I go to festivals like this. Well, you know, uh, I, I, I like to think I know some of your taste. I mean, you um, <laughs> you're into John Waters big time. You do for the, sure. Uh, the 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 divine. Was it the crew of Divine? Is that what it yeah, is? Yeah, that's our Mardi Gras crew. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And uh, <laughs> and of course, the image of for John Waters is Divine from Pink Flamingos. And uh, whenever I think of Divine, I don't think of like that awesome line of hers, like "Kill everyone now," condone first degree murder. You know this this whole thing. I think of her eating dog shit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because that was like the punchline. Yeah, that's like the most iconic that's, moment. That's yeah. still shocking to this day. I mean, the whole movie's shocking to this day. But what I'm getting at is that's awesome that that's your style of movie. Uh, that not style. That's your the kind of movie you gravitate towards. Yeah, no. Because quite frankly, it's the kind I gravitate towards too. I like movies that are startling and stunning and crazy and out there and are just pushing buttons. But when it comes to little, not little, but you know, movies like Causeway, where you can't quite class, you can't, you cannot classify it as shocking because it's not shocking. You can't classify it really as uh, awards bait, Oscar bait, because it's not really even exploiting that. It's not really that showy, you know, in terms of like, like I said before, the mother character isn't like, oh, if only I had been there for, you know, she's not like, you know, being theatrical or about being a bad mother or anything like that. It's just, people talking and hanging out you know and doing it's like the things that are said that aren't said in causeway and causeway is one of those kind of movies and i kind of appreciate that a a little bit more than maybe other people might movies where it is a little more challenging to move along with the movie's pace and to meet the movie halfway even if it's not an indie drama necessarily it's i mean i guess technically causeway is but it's got the star power. Uh, so you kind of think of it beyond being independent. You think of it like, okay, this is a real big movie somewhat. And, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I got to take it on that level. But then, you know, you watch the movie and maybe you start getting a little restless because it's a little slow here and there or maybe throughout. But I think it's rewarding if, if people go into it knowing that it's going to be a little like that. And knowing that there are people, critics like us, who see within it the little things that make up the big things, that, that make it that much better than what it could have been. It could have been Oscar bait, but what it is, is character and drama, not melodrama, just drama. You know, people trying to get on with their lives. And that's a, <laughs> believe it or not, that's kind of refreshing. From uh, say, uh, what's what's a movie that came out recently that 
That's big. Black Adam. Black Adam, yes. And I, <laughs> I kind of liked Black Adam. I didn't hate it or anything. I, I, I did enjoy it. But it's refreshing compared to that. That movie is like fast paced. It's action, 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 action. Pierce Brosnan, action, action, action. The Rock. You know, this movie, you have to kind of go along with it. You know, it, Black Adam, you can basically have dinner watching. And when I say dinner, I don't mean good dinner. I mean like junk food. <laughs> with Causeway, you're not having filet mignon, but you are paying attention to the screen. And, you know, that says something. Yeah, and it's good. <laughs> it's good that there is a mechanism within film festival culture and within the awards season, even if this isn't made as Oscar bait, it's good that there's a mechanism that clears space for movies like this to get a platform and get seen. Because... Uh, yeah, this is like the kind of occasion I need to slow down and watch something quiet. This is when you unbind. <laughs> what inspired you to create this? For me, it is the nightlife that I work in. You know, I'm around drag artists and burlesque people and circus people all the time. And so it's a look at behind the scenes and you know what it's like being on the stage. You're performing here in town, but also you teach other up and coming people. How yeah, to. I have a program that I created. It's called the New Orleans Drag Workshop. It's a 10 week intensive program. 10 weeks. 10 weeks. <laughs> it really is a performance art workshop teaching confidence levels, how to create a character, own it, take it to the stage and then bring the house down. I, I kind of wanted to start at the, the beginning, which is the best that I've seen thus far. And I got like two more to see. But the, the best film that I saw at the fest, and I, I almost want to start with, but I think I, it might be better if I start with the uh, the one that left me least impressed. And not that the movie has to be like impressive or anything, but when I say impressed, I mean like the least the movie I would rate the the lowest. Okay. As, as a critic, and that is the short film The Negro and the Cheese Knife. Now uh, that's a funny title. Right? Cheese knife. It's kind of, you know. And of course, right next to the Negro, it's like, okay, that's, that's maybe a little provocative. Um, that's why I singled it out to watch it. And uh, <laughs> so the movie's about, a, uh, according to the synopsis, and well, to me as well, um, but to the official synopsis, it's a black man is gifted a cheese knife from his white girlfriend. When he goes home that night, he discovers another black man robbing his apartment. What ensues? sees two black men from different sides of the track finding an unfortunate common ground. Now, that synopsis isn't totally correct. It doesn't really give you the exact... The movie does start with a well-to-do young black man uh, having a dinner date with his white girlfriend. And it's, and it's a very nice dinner date, you know? Uh, she is kind of wanting him to be a little more affectionate and be a little more understanding. And, uh, and he's, he is, but he's not necessarily expressing it as much. So, so we get some uh, intermingling of that, those kind of character traits, uh, relationship traits. Uh, she gives him a cheese knife. And he's like, uh, yeah, not too many black people have cheese knives. You know? And she's like, uh-huh, yeah, whatever. You know? <laughs> she's like, you don't like it, do you? you know, that kind of thing. She's not upfront about it, though. She's what I like is she does it in a um, girlfriend kind of way, you know, like, oh, like a passive aggressive thing, passive aggressive. Yeah, exactly. It's that kind of thing. You know, it's like, oh, great. Yeah, here we go. You know, 
Well, he goes home and, um, you know, he's got a nice little, like, apartment. It's one of the ones with the brick walls, you know, and it's, but it's also nice. It's not, you know, garbage place or anything like that. It's, uh, he's not, like, renting an Airbnb or anything. He's, uh, he, he goes home and this dude is robbing him, but the dude isn't trying to attack him. He's just trying to get out. And by accident, the um, the main character stabs him with the with the cheese knife. He's calling the police, and the guy just kind of runs into the cheese knife. Now the cheese knife is small. This isn't. We're not talking about like a real like weapon necessarily. I suppose if you hit the guy in the jugular, that would be a thing. But he kind of stabs him more like in the abdomen, so it barely goes beneath. You know, it, it's it barely goes into the body. He's bleeding, but not you know terribly. And so they. <laughs> We kind of have this forced confrontation between the two, uh, these two black men, uh, where they kind of very quickly but very forced go over their place in the community and where they're at in each other's lives. Uh, like he's one guy is is getting by rather well. He went to university. He's got a nice girlfriend. This and that. The other guy is a little more judgmental of him. Like, hey, you're not really. You know, you're not, you, you don't see what the real world, you know, you just call the cops and you're not seeing what this could end up becoming, you know, uh, and he's also like, I'm just trying to get by. Uh, so a police officer does in fact show up and what you suspect is going to happen does kind of happen. Uh, you know, the mistaken identity, you know, can you prove that you live here, sir? You know, that kind of crap. And the, the movie ends rather well. And I think the movie itself is really well shot and really well acted. It's just unlike, for example, a film like Causeway, where everything is understated and, and under the surface and perhaps a little too much for some people. This movie spells it out completely and maybe a little more than that. You know, it goes a little too far uh down the road to kind of you know it, it's like it it goes a little um past its um <laughs> it go it it, it 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 makes too much of an effort to say what it's trying to say and what it's trying to say we already kind of know by the end of it i was i wasn't rolling my eyes but i was kind of okay uh, that's cute you notice that at uh festivals sometimes like short films have a sketch comedy quality to them this kind of did feel like that a little bit, but it had more of a, uh, um, I don't want to say melodrama, but it did kind of have a dramatic edge to it. Yeah. Even though it was also mistaken identity, wrong place, wrong time comedy. Because the police officer uh, is actually someone who I've uh, met before, Jacob McManus. And uh, he's a local filmmaker and actor. And um, when you see him in person and when you see him in this movie, you don't think police officer. He's just got a kitty face, and this isn't like anything against the guy. In fact, I hope he's listening to this because I think he'd get a kick out of it. Um, he, he's just got a young face, you know. Uh, like if he, if he were to shave, you would not suspect he would be in his thirties or anything like that. You know, you might think early twenties or late teens. And I'm like, that's a police officer, <laughs> you know, in this movie. You don't really think that that's the, you know, but it, but again, the movie isn't necessarily trying to be some super dark movie because it really isn't. It's not like the guy comes in there and kills the, the dude who lives in the apartment and the other guy. Yeah, you know, it's not like it's doing something sinister. 
it's uh it's more or less a, a comedy drama of errors that's that's the best way i can put it and i, I gave it two and a half out of five like which is kind of passable but it's i don't know just really wasn't my thing not too bad of a disappointment even if it's your biggest one not too bad of a disappointment no i would i would agree with that uh in fact that's probably the lowest that i'm gonna end up rating any movie uh at the fest this year because the rest are um you know the rest of them were pretty good um and again the filmmakers behind negro and the cheese knife they did a good job with composition um i really felt like they had a grasp on um uh more so on camera work than they did with the writing necessarily it was the writing was more, almost like secondary it was almost like uh, we just need something to shoot you know find us something to shoot and so they picked something that was kind of okay and went with it and that's fine felt kind of like a student film maybe it was i don't know uh the next movie signal and noise this is a uh I picked this one. It's like an experimental short. It's in the experimental short category. Um, I always like picking a few from this this group because I don't know if they really get that much of an audience outside of festivals or or even at festivals for that matter. I think people like you, like we were saying before, gravitate towards the bigger stuff and maybe sprinkle into the you know the smaller things. Uh, and then you got experimental movies, and that's you know that 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 gets even less probably it's like putting sugar through that uh filter when you're making like exquisite bakery pastries yeah you, know, you go pink pink, pink and the little bits of yeah the sieve and the little bits of sugar uh sprinkle on there it's like it's like that that's what's left uh signal and noise takes it's a short documentary about a filmmaker and poet who uh in 2015 uh visits Guantanamo Bay the detention center and he's on a press trip where they take the press, members of the press, out on a... Uh, <laughs> it's weird. It, it, I didn't even know the Army really did this. I suppose it makes sense that they do. Uh, it's kind of like a, a field trip, but for the press. Like, t- it's like a propaganda display. Like, uh, come see Guantanamo Bay and how well we're treating these prisoners. and what Yeah, we're they doing do that, America. and there's a gift shop at Guantanamo Bay. Oh, God. Just really evil. I want to punch myself now. Yeah. Or, well, not myself. (laughs) I want to punch somebody who's not available, so I guess myself will do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't punch my computer screen, so I'll I'll just stick with my belly. Uh, (laughs) No. uh, So he goes to uh, Guantanamo Bay, and he's, you know, filming some stuff. Everything he films is is from the bottom, is from, like, the... um, uh, the waist down. He can't necessarily film the soldiers that are giving the tour because I guess it's a national security thing or something, even though I suppose they could have blurred out the faces. Um, but it's called Signal and Noise because he's more interested in the audio. He's more interested in the sounds of Guantanamo Bay, uh, like the birds or the environment outside of the the, the, the fences and um, the, the, the footsteps uh, and uh, and all that. Um, he he never gets to really interview any of the prisoners. Uh, however, he does interview an ex-prisoner um, who talks very well of his time and his experiences being. Um, it wasn't like full-blown waterboarding type torture that like during the W. Bush administration, but it, he does talk about being, you know, in prison, which by itself is you could argue is torture. 
Definitely. Uh, especially Guantanamo, because um, you're there without charge. You know, you're there without having gone through a trial. You're just there. And you're, 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 your rights are being withheld. But um, juxtaposed with the images and with the sound are this guy's, is this guy's retelling of things that happened to him. And uh, I don't want to say this movie, this movie isn't powerful. It only runs 13 minutes. 13 minutes can still be very impactful. This, this, this short, I felt like it had more of a concept than it had meat to it. it. It's astonishing to me how even still today, or as early as 2015 when this movie takes place, which was the, towards the end of the Obama administration, uh, which I should point out, Obama uh, signed an executive order. It was like one of his first ones was to get rid of a Guantanamo, and it never happened. <laughs> it's still there. Uh, nothing against Obama's legacy or anything like that. Just that's just one thing that's just like you could totally go, hey, wait a minute, you know. Uh, but it shows you even as recent as then, 2015, that the military is still doing and will probably always be doing media outreach in very wacky ways. But shit like this still, oh, it's part of my language, but uh, stuff like this still happens. You can, you can definitely curse on here if you want. Okay, I think I said, I think I said uh, dog shit earlier. So I, I, I think it's... we've said all the cusses across the cuss rainbow on this uh, podcast before. <laughs> Not worry about it. So what I'm getting at is Signal and Noise has, has a good concept and features a good revelation. Oh, my God. The, I just remembered the ending to this was particularly good. This might be the one reason why I gave it like a, three out of five, uh, as opposed to a two and a half. Uh, it almost was not as, you know, good. But the ending is like, I forget the, the song they're playing, but they, they end their media tour by getting in a boat and going um, around the shore of Guantanamo Bay. And for some reason, I don't know why, apparently they end the tour always with... I guess the guy who's uh, riding, driving the, you know, the, the the captain of the boats, he plays on the loudspeakers, uh, Botticelli, and it's like this, this somber-ish, like, you know, oh, wistful, oh, we're leaving Guantanamo, ah, da, 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 you know, and, and it's, it's going on, and I, I'm thinking like this is absurd, and so are the filmmakers. They're like, what the fuck is going on? You know, they're they're literally making a show out of this now. It might as well have fireworks, you know. This might as well be a musical all of a sudden, you know. And that, to me, was more interesting than I'm going to go there and record the sounds. Because the only sounds he get he gets are birds chirping outside and grass blowing. Only because those are the locations he was able to get to. He's not inside the, the detention center. He's on the outside of it just touring it. So the concept is there, the execution isn't there because he's not able to execute it, probably the way he wanted to. However, there is some nice poeticism going on, and there's some nice things revealed about how the military uh, treats the press and how the press receives that information and probably reports on it without reporting on it, really. You know, they're almost acting like as a PR company. Uh, in a sense, when they really should be questioning these things. So uh, that's signal and noise. The next one that I have to talk about is made by a good uh, 
document local documentarian and good friend. The movie is called Really Good Friends, and I knew nothing about it going in, and I'm glad because this movie takes this one takes a turn, and it's a lovely turn, uh, especially for for individuals like us who enjoy movies that are a little shocking. The official synopsis is very short. It says a portrait of a woman in her sixties who cultivates an unusual friendship with a mysterious man she meets online. Now, immediately that puts a picture in your head. Like, okay, older woman, you know, middle-aged, you know, whatever. Unusual friendship. Mysterious man she meets, on, meets online. Like, is this going to be like a catfish? You know, what, what does that mean? You know, this and that, what have you. The movie is entirely from her perspective. She, um... She she arrives at a hotel after getting off a plane. She, we see her going to the hotel and uh, checking into a room. We hear her narration like, uh, uh, you know, I sometimes go into these hotels and I make sure I have everything prepared with me and da-da-da-da-da. And we're like, okay, well, what does that mean? And what's interesting is uh, the filmmaker, uh, the friend Adam Secular, who uh, he did a really good movie a couple years ago called Tomorrow Never Knows which uh, features an actual death scene. And when I say that, I don't mean like someone get like a snuff film. I mean like there's a man in the movie, uh, or yeah, a person in the movie who is allowing themselves to die peacefully, and they make legal arrangements for that to happen. They decide not to eat, not to drink. They're just legally going to just let themselves go. And we see that person go, you know, in, in a scene, just in bed, you know. Uh, and it's, it's a little scary, but it's also a little nice to see. Uh, Adam has this really good way of um, making those kind of, bringing those things to light, things that are a little dark and uh, uncomfortable and propping them up and showing them for be, to be... Uh, not so dark, you know, like, like, well, or maybe they are, but there's also something more to it, or maybe it's okay to go through it. Uh, he did that with another movie about pregnancy, and he did this, again, with really good friends. Uh, I almost don't want to spoil it, but I kind of do at the same time, because, uh, it's, again, it's a short film, it's 10 minutes, and, it, and the, su- the surprise kind of happens early, very, a little slowly, but it happens. She, she's taking out her luggage, uh, and it's just one luggage. And you're thinking, okay, she's going to lay out her clothes. No, there's no clothes in there. Uh, what's in there are um, like uh, band-aids, uh, tools. I wasn't sure what the tools were exactly at first, but it becomes clear later. She's taking out like um, medical wipes and uh, things like that, you know, cushions for like make sure like if fluids drop, they to get soaked up, uh, you know, like pee pads for dogs, that kind of stuff. Um, and you're thinking, like, what the hell is going on here? Uh, she's in a BDSM relationship with the guy she met online many years ago, and they're just friends. And every once in a while, they meet up, they do a session, and that's it. And she talks about them in a rather, rather lovely way. You know, they're not romantic partners. In fact, they, they really don't have actual you know, they don't have like, you know, what we consider sex to be, you know, the traditional kind or anything. They're, they're just in a BDSM uh, type relationship. And she feels very open with him and is able to talk about things with him and, 
And she's talking about how at this stage of her life, you know, this is the kind of thing she can do and this and that, what have you. And it, it's it's actually kind of heartwarming, <laughs> you know, despite the um, the initial startle. Um, do you know the Bob Flanagan documentary, Sick? Sick, yeah. Yeah, that's got, that's... I'm, well, I mean, he was married to that woman, and they definitely were having like uh, penetrative sex. But uh, the, yeah. the intimacy of the BDSM with like his, you know, failing physical health and stuff was very intimate and like warm and kind compared to his health struggles, which were like really dark in that movie. It's kind of, kind of what you reminded me of. Have you seen that before? No, I haven't. I, I've heard of it. I think you'd like it. Okay. Well, uh, really good friends. Uh, never shows the man. It's only her, and uh, in her prepper, she's just preparing the stuff, and and we hear voiceover of her talking about this guy, and then um, it ends with her in bed, and she's like, "Yeah, we're just really good friends," and then the movie's over. And I was I was kind of you know I felt nice after watching it. I was like, yeah. "Oh, you know, wow, you know, we didn't see anything happen. It was just her laying out her tools." <laughs> And the reveals were very slow, too. It was like it was building up every every moment. You know, like, okay, she's got a pink luggage. Probably her clothes. No, it's medical stuff. Why is it medical stuff? Well, here's why. She's got pokers. Okay, why does she have pokers? She's got whips. Oh, now I know. <laughs> you know, I, now I know what's going on. You know, and, uh, and it's a little... I suppose some people might look at this and she's not like... I don't want to say she's unattractive. She's she's in her sixties, you know. Uh, she's just a regular woman, you know. But she's not like a model. She's just a regular woman. And some people might go, "Oh, she's she, you know, sixty years old doing BDSM. What is that about?" I'm like, "Well, what's it to you? Just let her do what she wants to do. She's doing it at a hotel. Who cares? Even if she was doing it at home, you know what? What's what's the problem?" You know, as long as they're safe. And in fact, she's doing it in the safest way possible. She's got, like, everything laid out. And she's even prepared if something goes wrong. She's got, like, medical stuff. She's band-aids, gauze, this, that, what have you. And I was, I was impressed. <laughs> I was like, that's exactly... Like, if I was in that kind of a relationship, that's exactly the kind of preparation I would want to go through. Like, I want to make sure everything is planned out. All the contingencies. Everything is, is laid bare, you know? Then we can get into the fun, but uh, <laughs> you know, I'm I'm kind of like a stickler about stuff like that. I'm I'm I actually diagnosed OCD, so I mean, you know, no no duh in my in my uh, situation. I mean, those uh, situations like those relationships are always like negotiated, almost like a legal contract. Like you have a very lengthy discussion about what you're gonna do before it happens. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> so uh, kind of stuff, yeah. Maybe some of the safest sex out there, because uh, it's actually like openly, it's an open dialogue before the actual event. Where like most hookup culture scenarios are more like, let's get drunk at a bar and then you know go at it <laughs> without any discussion. It's a little it. more awkward. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, hopefully, and awkward is like the like the most you really want that to be. If it goes even beyond awkward, then then we're in some dangerous territory. Yeah. You know, awkward is just like, okay, how does this feel? How does that feel? Oh, okay, <laughs> you know, don't go there. Okay, this is, this is the feeling out process. How much more awkward can it get than that? Okay. Have a dialogue. It's what we're uh, saying. 
I highly recommend Sick based on how you're talking about this. I think I think you'd enjoy that one. I think when you said Sick for the first time, I I almost thought of that HBO documentary where it's people who like to be tickled. Oh, that's just called Tickled. That's just called Tickled. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I that was the first movie that came to my head. That's like, a little more sinister. Sick is actually kind of sweet. I mean. Oh, okay. I it's seen it's a sad either. film because it's about declining health. But um, the the BDSM stuff is at least heartwarming within that context. Okay, well that's nice. Uh, <laughs> and some people are gonna listen to this like these two guys are talking about BDSM like it's nice. I'm like, oh, I could talk about that all day. Well, it is nice, <laughs> probably. In some yeah. cases, I'm sure it's wonderful. You know, I'm sure in other movies there have been movies that show it as a little more hardcore than that, and I'm sure it can get hardcore, but it can also be tender. Why not? Yeah. You know? So, anyways, next movie. Uh, this is by another friend of mine, Jonathan Jackson, uh, who's known for some of his more, um, I don't want to say flashy, but he's done, he's done some really good provocative, uh, films. Uh, the streets tell a story I believe was, uh, I don't know if this is a commissioned film from the city or if it was just made with their, uh, assistance, but, um, it's a, it's a little short eight-minute piece about the uh, New Orleans City Council's uh, street naming, renaming commission, where they rename, you know, streets that were named after Confederate uh, generals and uh, members and naming them after more relevant and, I guess you could say, better historical uh, people from New Orleans and that better match the community. Uh, The documentary... It's interesting. It, it it's it's kind of a standard one, really. It's it moves at a nice, quick pace, almost like it's trying to finish itself before it really has gotten started. I got the sense that, and I'm probably wrong on this. I'm sure Jonathan wanted to make this movie and everything, but it it almost feels like he's um get in and get out, you know, rushing like uh like oh yeah I gotta tell the story huh okay. Like, I didn't get the sense that he doesn't like the renaming commission or anything like that. It was more like the way that the movie was handled, it felt more like a marketing thing, like PR. It felt more like a PR piece in a way. Like, like uh, I don't know if, he, like I said, I don't know if he was commissioned or what. But anyways, the streets tell a story, very basic, a little like it's a product of PR, but I... I feel bad kind of saying that because, uh, and also a little incorrect saying that because seeing everything else that Jonathan Jackson has done or much more of his, of his work than he's done in the past, it it feels completely antithetical to that. Yeah. It it just, it just didn't feel uh, like, like his work. It was, it was good. It was journeyman. It was well-crafted. It was right to the point, but it felt like kind of ho-hum, you know, like, Oh, okay. So we renamed the, some of the streets, and there's a little bit of history to that with the Daughters of the Confederacy and this. Okay, end of movie. I was like, all right, whatever. And the last one I'll talk about is a movie I really wanted to see a while back. I finally got to see. It's uh, just under 30 minutes. It's called Iron Sharpens Iron. It's about the uh, Plaquemine Parish town of Ironton, which is a predominantly black community. Uh, this is a documentary by John Ritchie, who did, uh, I believe he did a gun control documentary many years ago, 
or maybe it was just about gun violence in general. I think he's covered that that topic in a few different films of his. He's, he's very good. This one covers um, the black community in Plaquemines Parish, specifically, Ironton, as I just said, and as it relates to the various kind of outside-in uh, aggression that, that hits not just them, but also black communities or historical black communities all across the country. Uh, by which I mean uh, things coming at you from all sides. You know, like, uh, uh, you know how Cancer Alley kind of affects low-income, poor people, black people, black communities yeah. more so than it does in other communities? It's almost like that area was singled out specifically to place those 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 uh, factories and those um, refineries. Yeah, through zoning and through you know through all sorts redlining of, and everything else. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and it was like okay, no one's going to care about those communities if we do it there. You know that kind of thing. Very snooty, very evil. So they're they're in Ironton, which has a very interesting history. Uh, it was. I believe it used to be a plantation, or there was a plantation, Rosalie, St. Rosalie, something like that. The movie is about the, uh, basically this council, the city council and the community, they're engaging with this company that wants to come in and place a very specific kind of, uh, I don't know if it's a, it's not a factory, it's a, uh, it's some kind of, something to do with energy, uh, oil and water, it's one of those kind of things. Uh, which could be a lot of things. <laughs> I just described right. something very broadly. Uh, <laughs> it has to do with like some something to do with like water supply or something. And uh, and it, the the place was going to be they were proposing was going to be placed right on where this plantation was. And the concern was that this was also a burial ground for for slaves for enslaved people. And they wanted a survey done to make sure that. The cem- any cemeteries that were found could be, you know, recovered and, found, you know, make sure everything was done right. And the company wasn't really doing that, you know. And so we see members of the community, they go out to the area. The area is covered in grass. You can barely see the ground. Council members are like, how come this area wasn't mowed? <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Like, look, you're making every attempt to not let us see what's going on here, you know. And, the company people are like, oh, we, we can come back another day and do the, you know, kicking the can down the road, that kind of thing. Um, we hear about the coastal restoration plans going on in the Ironton area. Uh, we hear about uh, this is wonderful little project they have regarding a uh, sedimentation, uh, like redirecting some, like a waterway and and uh, having it create more land. And uh, I thought that was pretty cool. But uh, the movie takes an immediate break. Like, there's a break between the, uh, the planned industry that's coming, that was wanting to come to Ironton and the future of Ironton, which has to do with Hurricane Ida. Uh, Hurricane Ida strikes. Ironton and Plaquemines Parish got hit particularly hard. Uh, and we see basically, like, the entire area was, like, underwater uh, by roughly got hit with like 12 to 15 feet of water, you know, so to speak, like every, every building, you know, all that stuff. And it's a very small community, Ironton, but it's, it's, it's got historical importance because it's dating back to uh, plantation times and everything, <laughs> plantation times. 
but we see people there trying to begin the, the uh, process of recovery. The movie kind of ends. It's open to interpret, you know, like it's open, like, okay, how are they going to recover now? You know, it's not the movie. The movie isn't trying to say resiliency will lead them to, you know, it's not that it's showing them as people, you know, who are like, our homes got messed up and how, you know, we're going to have to really, you know, work hard to get back up. It's not this touristy tale of, you know, poor people, you know, building their community back up victoriously. It's what really happens when a storm comes and ruins things. Yeah, recovery is usually very slow and not romantic. You know, it's, it's very slow, never romantic. Uh, it's 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 a pain in the ass, if not heartbreaking and tragic. Yeah, you know, especially if it's a community like that, which has importance to the state, not just as far as its placement in the energy infrastructure, but its place. Like I said before, historically, there's just markers there that uh, that are important for you know learning about where we come from yeah and there's basically no media or uh, financial attention sent anywhere outside of new orleans when that stuff hits so like most of the national coverage about ida was about the power outages in the city which you know elderly people did die i mean it was not great but like there were entire parishes that were like underwater and like really fucked over by the like water event um, that didn't get nearly as much national media coverage, and of course you got like uh, the more indigenous tribes of, yeah. of that of those areas that are are really not covered. But uh, they do get a little bit into Plaquemines Parish history, and they really try to um, balance everything from what's currently happening in Ironton to what previously happened has happened in Ironton to what could happen in its future. Uh, one of the more interesting parts was when it covered Leander Perez, who pretty much ran Plaquemines Parish as this like the super segregation land of with an iron fist, and it was just this all all general asshole uh, from the '40s and the '50s, and I think the '60s too. So it it just it just shows you how just how much of a machine there is to fight against. Uh, for this community and how little is being done to build awareness that that such a thing is happening still, not just in Louisiana, but in, in the country in general. And that's kind of a universal story, really, when you, when you think about it, because there's always going to be, you know, uh, the man versus the people kind of situation, you know. And uh, this is a little, <laughs> it's, that's a little simplified. This is a little more complex than that. But yeah, that's kind of the the overall message I got was was outside aggressors and inside community just trying to hold on and beat back the the oncoming storm. I ultimately gave it a three and a half out of five. And again, ratings are not the most important thing in the world. In fact, a lot of times they're uh, number ratings or star ratings, whatever you want to call them, are kind of silly. It's the starting point, not the destination. Yes. Uh, really, what you want to focus on is is the review, not necessarily right. the uh, the how it's ranked or anything like that. In the case of Iron Sharpens Iron, it's I would be 
happy for this to screen in more places, to stream in more places. I think it's going to on, I want to say WYES, PBS, local PBS. Uh, I'm not 100% certain on that. Don't quote me on that, but I think I, I heard that from John Ritchie. Uh, I, th- I think what, what's that program called? Independent Lens. That sounds right. That that PBS does. Yeah, uh, I think it might be going to that. And uh, if it does, I'll be very really happy for it to get out there and for the story to kind of keep being told. Because uh, I, I think Plaquemines Parish is kind of a one of those places in Louisiana. Like we were just saying, you know, doesn't get talked about as much or at all because I think it's almost like. You know, we're losing a lot of land already, so why bother with that particular area, which is mostly just a stretch of land, a small little thin layer of land that's in the middle of all this ocean. It's barely hanging on to the state. And I'm like, well, people still live there. Yeah, and usually the commerce and, like, industry is usually centered in places like that, and the money just flows outward and, like, doesn't actually, like, benefit the people who do the work. Right, exactly. So, uh... Yeah, those were the the films that I or most some of the films that I've seen at the festival. Uh, I've got two more to go through. Uh, those two uh, are one is a, a French film, I believe, inspired by a real terrorist situation that happened in Paris. It's called "You Resemble Me," which opens in AMC theaters this week. Uh, at, oh, at Elmwood, awesome! Elmwood specifically. <laughs> yeah, okay, wow, we were screens. just talking about Elmwood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I would. I Based on the trailer, I would recommend at least watching the trailer. It uh, it looks pretty good, uh, but I, obviously I'll know once I actually watch it. Uh, the other one is a documentary about a local uh, gospel singer. It's called A Taste of Heaven. Uh, I don't know how heck of a lot about it. I don't even really, I'm not even aware of the subject of the documentary. Uh, but all I know is I saw the image, the, the little image that uh, the New Orleans Film Society placed on it. And it's of this uh, this this guy in this, uh, almost like this uh, track suit, this, this uh, African-American man in a track suit, uh, sweating profusely, just belting out a, like a song probably, I, I guess on a microphone. Uh, well, not, it was a microphone, but I guess he was belting out a song. And uh, he's he's got like a little band together and everything, and he's on a stage and, and it just it just looks like it's a rocking party, and they said and it says gospel. I thought like, oh hell yeah, you know, is this like like tent revival stuff? Like this this is gonna be awesome, you know? Because it also apparently has a, a LGBTQ edge to the movie. Oh cool. Uh, involving the the the, the subject, uh, I guess, I and mean, that's what it suggested. So uh, so I'm all I'm all for that, you know, and uh, I'm really intrigued and. Uh, I will report on my blog newsletter. What's up with that? <laughs> Both of those sound cool. I'll check those out too. Yeah, and there were plenty of others at the the film fest I wanted to see, but it didn't quite have either enough time or I looked at it more closely and was like, yeah, I can probably skip that for now. One of them, I think you that you saw probably uh, Street Punks. Yeah, I saw that. Um, it's a local film. It's about making local films, and it's about making specifically movies that only play at festivals. So, yeah. like, uh, in Street Punks, there's these two New Orleans filmmakers who want to make a movie about street punks in Myanmar. Yeah. This, like, very religious Buddhist community 
that has these like mohawks and leather jacket style punks like as a counterculture there. And they don't know exactly why they want to do it other than they want to go to Myanmar to hang out with the punks. Like the director <laughs> has the hots for one of the punks out there. And uh, the kind of producer who's kind of schmoozing financiers and like paying for it um, just wants to get out of New Orleans to get away from all his exes that he keeps running into at parties. And they keep trying to justify the project as this like political thing like they're like hey i want to like go make this movie about this very important punk culture in myanmar um and they don't really believe in the project or at least they don't know how to justify it other than like they want to go it's just it's just a, a means to an end it's like a like an excuse yeah it's like uh, they're kind of playing around and like as the political strife in myanmar becomes like a national headline international headline it's like a satire almost about these like art kids who are making frivolous art in new Orleans. And like, it becomes like a satire about like filmmaking culture and like all these people who make art, but they don't even really know why they do it. It's just like for its own sake. And like, they just like basically enjoy the parties and the like camaraderie of the art itself. they kind of go to different financiers, like pitching a movie that they haven't even mapped out in their heads yet. And it's yeah. just like people like adding these ideas that don't really fit with the original pitch. And they just kind of like say whatever anyone needs to hear to try to get the funding. Uh, so the movie's kind of making fun of them for being like disorganized, you know, philosophically. And then it's it's really funny. There was like an after party for the movie at the Saturn bar. So it's kind of like go party with the exact kind of people that the movie was making fun of. It's very meta. <laughs> like, yeah. Immediately after. So I don't know. I, I, I didn't love it, but I, I kind of liked its satirical point of view, at least. Well, that's cool. Um, oh, I just remembered I, I forgot to talk about one movie. This sure. was the, the movie that was the, the best that I've seen thus far. Throw it in. Um, at the festival. Okay, it's called In Search of Pregame. Uh, it's by a filmmaker named Jason Foster. Oh, you did a, um, yeah, you did an interview for this one, right? Yeah, I, I interviewed the guy. Uh, very nice guy. Very great sense of humor. And uh, really cool uh, uh, ideas and uh, and uh, wherewithal as far as his place in filmmaking and where he wants to go with it and everything. Uh, this is kind of I, I would put this a little bit in the uh, experimental category, even though I don't think it's actually in that category at the festival. It's about twenty something minutes. It's a it's a very intimate documentary but I would, I would call it more of like an essay piece uh it's about uh jason himself who uh, uh we primarily see through home videos that his family shot through photographs that his family took and through f- video footage of him playing basketball in the present uh just by himself on a court you know uh and the movie's kind of reflecting on him and his place with his family and his father and where he stands now as a father himself with with children and doing all this through the gaze of someone who played basketball a lot and uh his father apparently was uh almost an nfl star or almost got to play uh big big leagues um but got hurt so he kind of uses that as like a, a place to uh, begin from, even though that revelation doesn't come till 
the end of the movie. It's almost like it's uh, uh, it's like it's done in reverse, kind of. It's it's interesting. Um, the movie goes. It's almost like three chapters in a way, but the chapters are never spelled out. But they're they're all there's these interesting segments. There's this one where it's just it's just one shot, one long take of him playing solo basketball, just just you know shooting hoops, and we hear in the background uh, what apparently was footage, and this is the audio of footage of a trip he took to Jamaica where he was born, and it's I believe was footage from a project he was previously working on but never completed. And over this, the video of him playing basketball and over the audio of this project, we see text that's basically uh, in-real-time commentary from Jason. Like, he'll type things like, um, note to self, insert song, Madonna, <laughs> you know, something like that. Uh, but it's not all jokes. Now, a lot of it's like... Um, just general commentary, you know, like uh, when a certain moment hits in in the that that segment, he'll go. This reminded me of my brother who da 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 da. You know, uh, how come I feel this way about this? And da 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 da. It was it's it was particularly striking the his use of all three forms of um, media uh, in that particular segment, and that segment goes on the longest, uh, the longest stretch of time. You know, we're hearing this footage from the past. We're seeing him in the present. I assume it was in the present, just shooting hoops uh, in one long shot, one long take. And we're seeing text in post that was done, you know, in editing uh, of how he feels about everything after it's been essentially just about completed. And taking all three of those things in together, I, I, was, I was left astounded. Uh, I was like, wow. This is <laughs> this is pretty pretty awesome. Uh, now, having explained that, it almost probably from someone who, um, for, you know, anyone listening to this who who hasn't seen the movie might feel that this is going over their heads, or maybe it's being too show offy, or maybe it's too experimental, or too whatever, too much. Uh, I would. S- Say no, it wasn't uh, show offy whatsoever. Uh, it was it was very um, very comfortable with what it was doing, uh, and it's the movie isn't all that. You know, it's not just that segment. Uh, we go into some home videos, like I said before, and then later in the movie we see photographs and we hear uh, the audio from a phone conversation he's having with his mother. And uh, that is a particularly great scene because it's just the visual is just uh, the camera running over the lines on the court on the basketball court, and we see it's like almost perfectly in the middle of the frame, and we see left and right, you know, one side of the line, the other side of the line, while he's talking with his mother, and she's discussing his. Uh, the history of, of having how she met his father and how he played basketball and stuff like that. And the movie, as it was built up to that point, we had seen his uh, him with his baby on the basketball court and kind of, you know, playing with, with his little kid and as they grow up and everything like that. And as it's built up to this point, it, you, you almost kind of have this feeling of like past and future 
where things were, where things are going, you know, left, right, one side of the line, the other side of the line. And this kind of almost unattainable question. You're not really sure what the question is, but it's almost like, where is he going in life? And it's probably what he's asking himself, too. Uh, or what what path, you know, what, what decision should I make next? And uh, maybe it's a little obtuse. Maybe I'm just into these kind of movies that are a little... Uh, I don't want to say uh, uh, terribly exp- experimental, because uh, I don't even think this is really exper- experimenting. I think this is utilizing uh, what's already there, what's already in place. It's just putting it together in a way that you don't see as often. You only see maybe at festivals. Yeah, it sounds almost like a video diary, but like more like a video scrapbook or something. Yeah. Kind of like a mixed media piece. Yeah, that's I would. That's a great way of putting it. Um, I say essay piece because he's, sure, but maybe done a little more. Um, I said obtuse, but I think it, the right word is probably more. It's a uh, not esoteric, but maybe close to esoteric. It's it's still universally understood, like what he's going going for, and it's you, you feel it and everything, but it's definitely very personal to him. You know, uh, he's not saying anything that, like, we don't get. Like, he's not referencing something that happened without showing what had happened or expressing it in some manner. But it is very close to the chest. But um, I, I was pretty much blown away by it, even, even at its short runtime, you know. And I don't like to say that that's like, oh, wow, for a short film, this is great. Short films can be great. You know, by themselves, I think short films get don't get a, enough of a push, uh, and that's a shame. Well, I'm as guilty as most people. Where like, even at festivals, I might go to like an animated shorts block or an experimental shorts block, but for the most part, I'm looking for features. So the rest yeah. of the movies I have to talk about on this list are all feature films. Okay, <laughs> that's okay. Uh, but I will I will admit to that too. That I, I'm like, okay, what are the features? <laughs> you know? But then I remember, like, wait, how long is this feature? <laughs> then, it, then it's like, wait, why am I looking at the features? If I'm, if I'm more interested in the time, I should be looking at the shorts. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's, it's very interesting how that works. So, okay. Uh, what did you see? I'm going to stick to the most significant stuff. I, I saw one movie, uh, they just announced today the Audience Awards. I saw one movie that won an aw- Audience Award, uh, I believe for Best Documentary Feature, uh, which was Friday, I'm in Love. Okay. It was, I believe, like an example of what not to do when making a documentary <laughs> in a lot of ways, but I still enjoyed it. It's about this nightclub called Numbers in this gay district of Houston. And it started as a sort of like general like dinner cabaret, uh, kind of like the way that like when strip clubs first opened in the French Quarter, like you'd go out with your wife uh, and husband, like you know, dressed in like a suit and a gown to go sit down and watch burlesque. Like it was that kind of like dinner theater, but it was like slightly raunchy. Awesome. Um, and then when that kind of died out, it turned into a gay disco for about fifteen years, and then the owners started mixing in these like goth and industrial nights and new wave music. And then it became like 
half a gay disco, half an alternative music venue. So instead of like punk bands playing there, it was like one of the only places in the American South where like Depeche Mode and Ministry and Nine Inch Nails and Susie and the Banshees and like the more new wavy style and gother style of like punk music had like a huge audience. So it became this kind of like cultural epicenter for a certain type of like nerdy alt culture, like rock and roll kid um, in Houston. So like the movie's got a bunch of great anecdotes and a bunch of great archival footage and just little artifacts from every cool band from like the late seventies through the early nineties, which is awesome. But when I'm saying it commits all the sins of like the worst documentaries, like it is ultimately a bunch of talking heads just sort of like wistfully recalling the glory days and like the documentarian is very young and they make themselves a part of the story for like no particular reason. Like they're just kind of in there and they're talking about their own experiences with the nightclub, but like they're not really that involved with the history of it. They just enjoy the venue, which is like not enough of an excuse for you to be in the movie that you're making. Um, (laughs) You know, it's not like the basketball movie you were just talking about where like the movie is yourself. So like the movie's about your life and your personal journey so like you have to be part of the subject in this case you just it's like an ego thing like i don't know why you're on the screen as part of the subject when like the numbers nightclub history goes from like the past half century of pop culture yeah but you know if you tell enough stories about drag queens and bjork and divine and like nine inch nails like of course i'm going to be charmed and i I understand why uh, it won an audience award. It's got a bunch of really good music in it, you know? Like, <laughs> uh, I, I, I get the appeal, and I thought it was like a pleasant watch, but I don't think it was like especially great filmmaking. Okay. The rest of the stuff I'll talk about, I'll be a little more enthusiastic about maybe. but <laughs> <laughs> You were not in love with Friday, I'm in love. It was fine. As far as like low-budget, low-profile stuff goes, the, the movie that really won me over on like the virtual offerings was three-headed beast oh i I, yeah i heard about this one yeah uh it's also a a movie set in texas it's a narrative feature set in austin um it's this couple who have this like polyamorous agreement where we first see the two of them it's it's a heterosexual couple in a pansexual poly agreement so like we we see them having sex with same gender partners um separately and then they come together to do like kind of just domestic stuff so like they're off having gay sex and then they come home and like make dinner together and have sex with each other that's a lot of sex yeah the movie has a lot of sex in it which i actually (laughs) thought was really cool like it's a low budget movie but it's like very sexy and stylish and it's very frank about these different relationship structures there's basically no dialogue for the first hour in this like 80 to 90 minute movie um we just sort of gather a lot of like context details about like what kind of relationship this couple has but we gather those details by watching them go on solo adventures to have sex with other partners and then seeing how their body language with these people that they don't have to have like serious relationships with differs from their own body language when they're like at home like doing domestic stuff which is more 
complicated, you know? Like, it's not just smoking weed and hooking up. It's, like, deciding what, what you're going to do for vacation or how to manage money or, you know, like, there's just more stuff to negotiate at home. So, like, there's a lot more stress on their own relationship than there is when they go out and have fun with other people. And about an hour in, they start to have, like, actual dialogue where they're talking this stuff out. But by then, we have, like, so much backstory and context about, like, what they're individually getting out of their, like, separate sex adventures with other people. Um, And it becomes, like, a pretty thoughtful, tender movie about this romance that's changing as they're, like, getting different things out of the polyamory. And I don't know. I just thought it was, like, really cute and romantic and uh, well shot and... The fact that it can convey so much with body language without having discussions, like it is kind of a similar intimacy as the small scale stuff in Causeway, but it's a little flashier because it's these like DIY, no budget filmmakers trying to catch your attention at a festival. So like there is more like sex and drug use and like um sort of like <laughs> sex and drugs and rock and roll flashiness to it. Um <laughs> But, you know, at, at the end of the day, it's the same kind of drama. It's very intimate, like, one-on-one negotiations of, like, this kind of uneasy relationship that's still defining itself. I, I thought it was very impressive. It, it was actually the first thing I watched at the festival, and it got me really excited to watch, like, no-budget DIY filmmaking for a week solid. And then uh, I was disappointed to find that it was going to be my, like, favorite thing I saw. (laughs) You know, know, I was like, oh, I can only go up from here. Like, I'm apparently in the mood for this kind of thing. And I I, I started off with a bang. (laughs) So uh, so I'm guessing this was a very sex-positive movie, based on what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, And it's like, it's not advocating for anything in particular. It's not like saying, like, polyamory is good for these two people. Um, if anything, the two of them have two wildly different experiences with it and they have to like kind of meet on a common ground. So like it's sex positive in a way that it doesn't judge them for anything they're doing. Um, it's just like kind of following them as they like find their footing, trying something other than like a long-term monogamous marriage, which is what we learned that they've been living with before the movie started. Right. So I don't know. It was very cool. It's called three headed beast. I don't know. Where else it would play besides festivals, which is, I guess, the kind of thing that we were saying that we're seeking out. So um, if, if you happen to see it at a festival near you, uh, I recommend checking it out. Uh, the last two I'll single out are the two that I saw in theatrical screenings. I went to the Britannia Uptown for the local premiere of Last Dance. Last Dance is a French documentary about a local drag queen. Lady Vincentos started as a drag queen in San Francisco, but I want to say about 10 years ago, they moved to New Orleans um, and opened the New Orleans Drag Workshop, which has been the biggest shift in local drag culture that I've seen in my lifetime here. Like, we used to have a very traditional Southern pageant beauty queen style culture here, and like, Drag Workshop has put out this whole generation of like really strange performance art confrontational bizarre it's not about 
impersonating another gender. It's about like completely breaking someone's brain, <laughs> engrossing them out, or just like doing something you've never seen in like a performance art context before. I like that. It's cool. It's been very exciting, and like the things I miss about going to drag shows like pre-COVID, I've I've mostly seen echoed in documentaries that were filmed in that time. So, like, last year, there was one called To Decadence with Love, which filmed yes. a lot of... Um, so, like, most of the drag queens in that movie were New Orleans drag shop graduates. Um, this movie's about the drag queen who started that workshop. Okay. And it's Vincentos' final show in Paris. So, like, they're preparing, like, a farewell show in another country but it's filmed mostly in New Orleans. And at the same time, they're talking about their past in San Francisco, which honestly was like the part that really excited me because there's a lot of like archival footage of these like experimental horror films that they were making when they were younger. Um, I think a little bit of it was with Peaches Christ, who is one of their like, you know, co-conspirators back when they lived on the West coast. Okay. And, you know, just seeing the scraps of like, uh, eight millimeter footage uh, from the '90s, like goth scene out there, was like fantastic. And I was like, oh, I wish I was kind of just watching like a compilation of that stuff. But it was also just cool to see like this local drag scene that I appreciate as a patron and as, as an audience member get its full due. And like the person who's kind of responsible for giving that a platform and like encouraging those artists seeing them highlighted and acknowledged for like changing the drag scene here was really cool. Wow. That's, that's great. Yeah. I love that you mentioned to decadence with love. Um, I, uh, I watched that, I think for the festival, I think last year, or whenever. And, uh, I want to say, actually, I may have seen it even earlier than that, but, um, uh, that, that was a particularly good one. Good yeah. documentary. Yeah. I, I really, I really liked it. Yeah. That one was like, it was filmed over Decadence Weekend, as the title would suggest, uh, and it was like mixing drag queen interviews with like interviews with the Uber drivers that were like shipping the drag queens from like venue to venue as they were like trying to rack up as much Decadence Weekend money as they could. Yeah, this one has more of a historical eye, I guess, about about this one artist in particular, but like about the context of where all those queens like came up together, and I, I believe one of the main queens in that movie was frankie uh who, who does the mime work in that okay. in that film frankie is also one of the main queens in this one as well like there's a lot of bleed over also i should shout out my our, our friend uh gail king kong who used to do these like eight dollar shows down the street from us um is also prominently featured in both of those movies um and get some fantastic clips out of both of them nice and I guess the highest profile thing I saw besides Causeway uh, was this movie called Nanny, which is going to be on Amazon Prime in a few weeks. Uh, it's a horror film that premiered at Sundance and I believe won the grand prize at Sundance this year. Yeah, I heard I heard about that. Yeah, I wasn't I, I just heard the name Nanny and uh, I was like, OK, horror movie, whatever. You know, I'll catch it when I know more. And uh, so I'm excited to hear about this. It's a Bloomhouse production, but it's got more of a like prestigious profile than like anything they've made since Get Out, which I guess is like the last time they had something like actually awards worthy. Yeah. It's got a similar bent. It's a political horror film kind of calling back to the 60s uh French Senegalese film Black Girl, 
where um, this Senegalese worker, um, a domestic worker in New York City, is working for a white family raising their child. Uh, but at the same time, she's like trying to bring her own son to America so that she can like root her family here. So like as she's struggling to get the cash together to bring her own son to America, she's like spending all this time sur- being a surrogate mother to this white child and you know teaching her French and like basically just being there when her parents aren't because they're kind of like rich, disconnected parents. Right. The horror stuff is kind of secondary, and I think it's like, if I'm going to be like picky here as a genre fan, I think it's like what makes the movie attractive to critics who don't normally like horror films is like all the political drama is very upfront and center. And like, that's what the movie's more about is this immigrant story. And the horror stuff is like very cleanly segregated to these like almost dream sequences and like hallucinations where like none of the supernatural events of the movie are really physically happening in the real world. So it's very neatly separated. And there is some, like, creepy stuff. Like, there's a really good atmosphere of, like, these um, African folklore figures, like uh, Anansi the Spider, who I believe is, like, a trickster character. And there's also this, like, sort of feminist mermaid figure that I wish I knew the name of off the top of my head. But, like, they are influencing her within this white family's home and, like, kind of taking over her brain and her body and making her do things that she isn't consciously aware that she's doing. But, you know, the way they creep into the frame is very, it's like, it's like dream sequences. You know, it's not, it's not like they're actually in the physical world where other characters can see them. Um, And I think there's just something very like hands off about the horror elements where it feels like non-horror people making and appreciating a horror movie <laughs> <We're> like <laughs> I, I don't want to question i don't want to question it's like street cred or something like that but like it kind of <laughs> feels like that like like the director's heart isn't in the horror stuff as much as it is the immigrant story which i think makes it more palatable for you know awards attention and like critical appraise than something that really gets its hands dirty with like the genre aspects yeah so like it wasn't a movie for me exactly because I, I would rather the supernatural stuff to be very explicitly out in the open and like part of the story in a more involving way. Um, I saw a movie called good madam at overlook, which was also like an atmospheric update to black girl and had a very similar story. And I actually found that one more appealing and it got not as great reviews. So like I think it, I think it is like a genre fan distinction, unless I'm just out of sync with what people appreciate in this kind of stuff, which also happens a lot of the time, uh, for for other reasons I that would, I can't define. I would say go against the grain more <laughs> often than not. I mean, I'm not like, doing it on purpose. <laughs> I guess that's what I'm no, saying. No, <laughs> no. I, I think it's excellent when a critic goes against the grain, uh, against the consensus, because uh, a that makes things more interesting, but also y- you have the opportunity to bring something out of a movie that maybe was missed or uh, wasn't talked about enough. And you have an opportunity to not only express your thoughts on it, but maybe to promote it as well. And uh, if it's in the positive, of course, uh, if it's a movie you hated that everyone loved, that's, that's a whole different, you know, uh, <laughs> that's a whole different conversation in a way. But um, yeah, no, if, if, if there's something that, you know, like this, uh, I, I think I heard of, uh, 
What'd you say it was called? Good Madam? Yeah. And um, I guess the more useful thing to do is just to say, if you enjoy Nanny when it comes out, Good Madam is also worth a look. It, it's on Shudder already. Oh, okay. And it's interesting that they came out. Uh, I mean, who knows when they were both made, but like distribution-wise, they were like released around the same time. I think they're interesting comparison points with each other. Um, that one is set in South Africa, and Nanny is set in New York City. But they have a similar... Oh, sure. Definitely. They have a similar, like, racial servitude in a domestic worker space set up uh, where that stuff is sort of cathartically brought to the surface with, like, atmospheric horror tropes. I I might be willing to praise Nanny a little more enthusiastically if it stuck the landing. I, the ending is, like, very rushed. It doesn't really let you sit in the discomfort of some, like, horrific things that happen at the end. It leaves you on like a lighter note than I really want for my horror films. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think in general, that's what I'm trying to say. Like, it, it's not really fully embracing the genre it's working in, but not really in a way that like feels purposeful. It just, it just feels like it's it's kind of like got like the safety guards on, where it's like it's kind of protecting itself from like fully getting into the genre. Kind of a cop out. Well, I don't even know if it's a cop out so much as it's like this is how you get funding for stuff. Like it might've been harder for this type of story to get attention at a festival or even get funding to be produced in the first place without the hook of the horror. But I don't think the horror was like the main purpose. You know, I I felt like the movie could have existed without all that supernatural folklore and not really lost much. Um, You know, it would have been an equally tense film without it. So maybe the movie was like a compromise. Yeah, it feels a, it feels a little like there are other things the director wants to do um, outside of this genre, and this was what got funding. Okay. Um, but I don't think it's a I don't think it's a bad movie in any way. I think it's perfectly fine. <laughs> I just uh, I'm I'm struggling to like um, fully embrace it because I feel like it's not fully embracing what I personally would have liked to have seen in it. Yeah. Um, but it is the most high-profile movie I saw at the festival. So I feel like I had to mention it anyway. Okay. <laughs> Me telling people that Three-Headed Beast is the best movie I saw at Film Fest um, is technically the truth, but not a very useful truth because I'm not sure oh, where, you not... Would enc- where you would encounter it, you know? Well, yeah, but I mean, it's, it's entirely useful because it puts a movie like that on their radar or movies of that ilk on their radar you know like maybe they can't see three-headed beast but maybe they can see short bus and i will say i usually hear about stuff like that that um i've seen no one else write about uh through your newsletter so if that kind of stuff does interest anyone listening i've i've found movies before through your uh your sub stack that uh i've only heard about (laughs) because of you i don't know where you scrape this stuff up uh from the the internet but it's it's (laughs) It's it can be difficult sometimes. I just I just I'll stay up late at night just on Google, just searching like keywords, and uh, or I'll be on Letterboxd, and one thing leads to another, leads to another, leads to another, uh, or Wikipedia even, and I'll learn about some filmmaker that I never never heard of, all because I I read a Wikipedia page for a Marvel movie, and it just kind of led me down this rabbit hole, you know, like uh, seven um, seven degrees of Kevin Bacon almost. But it goes beyond seven degrees. It goes to like twenty. Well, I appreciate the research. 
on the deep dark web. <laughs> oh, I, I'm afraid of the dark web. I, yeah. I, don't, I don't even know how you get on that. I don't want to know. Well, dig deep enough for those uh, independent titles, and I'm sure you'll find it. Okay. <laughs> well, check out Movie Going with Bill, and um, stick around on this podcast feed, because I'm sure I'll have you back soon uh, as we get into list-making season towards the end of the year. Oh, absolutely. I'll... I'll um... Uh, I have a, a letterboxed account where I uh, have my current favorites of the year. They're not really in an order, in a particular order, but they kind of are, at least the top five, maybe. So uh, if you can find it, letterboxd.com slash reviews, you know, leave a comment or uh, make your own list, I recommend. And uh, yeah, I'll be happy to come back on and uh, talk about the official Film Critics Association lists and uh, our yeah. opinions on it. Do you have like a movie I should watch before we we start making those lists? Like something you oh. think kind of went under the radar that's like very high up for you? Uh, the first film that comes to mind immediately is Blonde, but but that's not a movie I'm going to rank anywhere near the top because even though it's a great film, it's also a film I'm never going to watch again. Yeah, highly unlikely I'll ever watch that. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's, it's, got, it's got it. a lot of problematic things about it, but it's also greatly made, so it's like, it's a little odd. Um, looking at my list here, I would recommend, if you haven't seen Mad God... We talked about that Overlook. Oh, yeah. we did. Yeah, okay, you're right. How about um, Inspector Ike? Never heard of it. Exactly the kind of Bill recommendation I'm looking for here. <laughs> it's, a, it's kind of... Um, it's in the movie is made in the style of a seventies made for TV movie, but it's also like a comedy. It's like kind of like a spoof movie, uh, but it's very independent and uh, it's very very good. I think that's plenty of movie titles for one recording. I think we've overwhelmed the feed. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> oh, you can never, you can never. <laughs> Next time we'll we'll come back with another flood of titles, uh, and I'll talk to you then. Yeah, can't wait. <laughs>